0: Good morning.
1: Let's get
2: straight to markets. Take a look at the impact for the indices.
0: Factual. Succinct. All you need to know before your trading day starts. Subscribe to our newsletter, CNBC's Daily Open. Beyond the Valley. Hello and welcome to another episode of CNBC's Beyond the Valley. I'm Arjun Kapoor here in Guangzhou, China. And today we're going to be dealing with the topic of Bitcoin versus Ethereum. What's the differences between the two? And what really sparked this idea for me was, I remember covering the crypto space two or three years back, and one of the things you saw was, in terms of prices, if Bitcoin went up, everything else went up. If Bitcoin went down, everything else went down. But nowadays, you're starting to see a divergence between some of these different coins, especially with Ethereum at this point, as investors begin to look at this space more closely and study the differences between these different cryptocurrencies and to help me out with the conversation today we'll be hearing from two uh, brilliant guests the first uh, the head of research at blockchain.com also a visiting fellow at the london school of economics the second a top executive at consensus which is an entity that is building ethereum based apps now on the basic level Ethereum is a blockchain on which developers can build different apps. Ether is the token or cryptocurrency that powers that. And I just want to spend a quick second On blockchain it's a topic we've dealt with on other episodes of beyond the valley so i'd urge you listeners and viewers to go back and listen to that but just very quickly it's effectively a distributed ledger of activity in bitcoin's case it's a public ledger designed to verify and record the different transactions and it's immutable it can't be tampered with and depending if it is public or private depends on who has access to it but that's the basic idea a shared distributed ledger of activity now back to ethereum You can think of it almost as an operating system of sorts. If you think about Apple's iOS for iPhones or even Google's Android, those platforms developers can come in and build apps on top of. It's very similar to the concept in any way of Ethereum. And this is very different from Bitcoin because Bitcoin is very much designed to be a means of transaction, a currency, some call it digital gold, depending on your point of view. But that's very different to Ethereum and it's worth just uh, spending a second talking about the original white paper, for Ethereum, which was published in 2013 by the founder Vitalik Buterin, and eventually the project launched in 2015, six years after Bitcoin. And Vitalik did praise uh, Bitcoin, but said he wanted Ethereum to be something different. And in that white paper, he describes Ethereum as a next generation smart contract and decentralized application platform. Two very key terms here, smart contract decentralized applications and i'll add one more decentralized finance or defi and we're about to delve into all these topics so stick with us and to help us out with the conversation i want to introduce my first guest garrick Harman, the head of research at blockchain.com also a visiting fellow at the london school of economics now garrick was one of the very first episodes of beyond the valley in which we spoke about bitcoin garrick so good to have you back on uh, beyond the Valley podcast.
1: Thank you, Arjun. It's a pleasure to be back on again.
0: So I just want to kick off really with a a broad overview. What are some of the big differences between Bitcoin and Ethereum?
1: It's always tricky to try to simplify this in just a few words, but Ethereum was developed to allow for smart contracts in a way that are not as fully available on the Bitcoin network. So oftentimes you'll hear Ethereum described as having more room for expressive and more capable decentralized applications. And we'll get into maybe more what that means, but uh, more advanced programming, more automation, maybe a way to maybe characterize it and uh, also more capacity. So scalability is another big uh, feature that Ethereum is very focused on. And uh, a lot of what people are excited about in terms of what's in the pipeline for Ethereum have to do with that scalability, that additional capacity.
0: So Ethereum, as you mentioned there, sort of talks about itself as, as a blockchain platform for smart contracts and decentralized applications. And I want to dig into these terms specifically for our listeners and our viewers as well. So let's just start off with this term smart contract. What does it mean?
1: I always like to try to explain smart contracts with an example, something that is automated, uh, that can verify this took place and then say automate a payment And so um, imagine you were traveling and you have flight insurance, your flights delayed or canceled. If that insurance policy was on a smart contract, the smart contract could in essence check automatically to see whether the flight was delayed or canceled and make a payment to you without you having to file a claim. And also you wouldn't even have to trust that the insurance company had the money. The money is held in escrow in the smart contract uh, on the blockchain. Network, so that's kind of the value proposition of of a kind of a smart travel insurance contract.
0: So, if you sort of uh, extend that beyond sort of that application, which of course are very useful, and what are some of the sort of bigger things you see when the world of smart contracts? Let's take it to say sort of large financial institutions, for example, even governments.
1: Yeah, this is where it gets really exciting. So, things like you you imagine the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ can be, in essence, a smart contract, meaning that basically an entire exchange can operate in an automated way without people on top of a blockchain like the Ethereum network. And we've already seen some very significant traction for these, what are called decentralized exchanges, which are basically just kind of a version of a smart contract, a money market protocol where borrowing and lending is fully automated. Again, no people matchmaking or or intermediating. That's another... Uh, advanced smart contract that's gained a lot of traction to date.
0: And the reason we're calling it a smart contract is effectively, uh, we have a contract, but the rules of that contract are in code, right? That's that's how this kind of works. And effectively, if, if one thing happens, that code is executed, right? And, and carries out the terms of the contract in a simple way.
1: I think that's correct. And I think the word smart can be a little misleading. It might imply like an artificial intelligence, but I think the the truth is closer to what you described, where the rules are embedded in software code and are executed automatically. Uh, Now, some people may question whether that term smart is appropriate, given that sometimes people intend one thing to happen with smart contracts and uh, something else happens. These are bugs. And uh, unfortunately, we've seen a lot of exploits of smart contracts uh, this year. Hundreds of millions, in fact, have been siphoned off due to various programming issues of these smart contracts.
0: Yeah, and that we'll certainly get into some of the challenges uh, in a moment. Just want to get into a, another term and that is sort of decentralized applications. And we hear the word decentralized a lot when it comes to Bitcoin. For example, decentralized currency, uh, you know, the idea that there's no sort of intermediaries, no middle people uh, at this point. But when we talk about decentralized applications, how would you describe that?
1: Yes, I think the most important thing to remember when you hear the word decentralization is this is not an either or. This is not binary where you're either decentralized or you're not decentralized. This is a spectrum and you can exist at various points along that decentralization spectrum. And and so uh, that's really important to keep in mind. There's no such thing as something that's completely decentralized. There's different degrees of decentralization. And what we mean by that really is we are not having to trust a person or an institution to keep their word. I often will, when I'm teaching this in classes, put up a picture of a handshake, you know, a very traditional way of of, uh, achieving cooperation and trust, but also something that can be very easily broken. Rules that are automated in software uh, are more trust minimized, arguably, than that handshake and therefore harder to break.
0: So when we talk about that idea of permissionless as well, that's where this comes in. So I mean, just describe that term, because again, it's something that that we're going to come up against a lot.
1: Yeah, permissionlessness is a a way of saying that this is open access to anyone with a computer and an internet connection. You don't need to go apply to use uh, the Ethereum blockchain or the Bitcoin blockchain. You just have to have a computing device and an internet connection. And you can start using these uh, blockchain networks. You know, that's not how traditional finance has often worked, where you have to go into a bank, provide some identification and get approved. And there's a billion plus people who don't have bank accounts, some of which, you know, hundreds of millions don't have ID and blockchains kind of do away with all that and saying, hey, just get on the Internet and you can start transacting, coding, building an application, launching the next uh, Alibaba on a decentralized network.
0: Yeah, you take that idea of decentralized, now you take it to decentralized finance, DeFi, huge buzzword again, and just lay out what that means for us.
1: Yeah, so DeFi is a buzzword that is typically associated with these DApps, decentralized applications that are built on top of Ethereum, but really we're talking about financial blockchain you know networks and even bitcoin for example could arguably uh be classified as defi but most people wouldn't refer to bitcoin as as defi they're talking about things like money market protocols that facilitate borrowing and lending uh in an automated fashion or or decentralized exchanges or things like even uh you know emerging forms of Blockchain-based insurance, you know, kind of proto deposit insurance, if you will. All of this kind of falls under the heading of DeFi. And uh, many people are, are looking at this and saying this is the new financial system that's being built and can replace our existing traditional financial plumbing with decentralized financial plumbing.
0: Now, I think one of the interesting parts of uh, because this, you know, we're talking a lot about Ethereum here, is, is the relationship between Ether the token, the, the, the digital currency, and Ethereum, the blockchain network, You know, uh, how do those two work together? And then I guess the other question is, is Ether necessary for the Ethereum blockchain to sort of work long-term?
1: You, you ask all the easy questions, Archer. <laughs> so it's important to think about um, these two things as kind of distinct, but also uh, very integrated. And, and you can think of Ethereum as kind of like the database or the ledger or the network. Um, you know, sometimes you'll use uh, the analogy of like a train car, you know, as kind of like the currency or the asset that's traveling on top of the train tracks, those rails, you can think of as Ethereum, the network. And in the case of Ether, the train car and Ethereum, the train tracks, these things are locked together. Uh, they can't be kind of separated. Ether lives on those rails and cannot be taken off those rails in the same way you could think of like, well, I could take my US dollars and move them across Visa's rails, and then I could move them across PayPal's rails. I can kind of lift that train car up and off of different rails. Ether is locked and fully integrated to Ethereum, the network, and that integration. Is partly what allows for the ease of programming smart contracts and decentralized applications in DeFi.
0: And then I just want to get onto, I guess, some of the challenges as well with, with Ethereum. And you mentioned one earlier, some of the bugs, perhaps, with, with smart contracts, and some of the uh, the issues in terms of people losing money that result from that as well. I mean, how are those things solved? Um, you know, and how big a problem is that uh, as we look to the future of Ethereum?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think the latest assessments are over a half a billion US dollars has been you know, lost through various exploits or bugs, uh, flash loans, uh, attacks, uh, vampire attacks. There's, there's all sorts of different names. It is a real issue. And it's important for people playing in the DeFi space to understand this is still... Semi-experimental, and even some of the oldest and most battle-tested money market protocols. Compound, for example, recently had a bug that allowed for um, you know kind of the treasury to be to be drained uh, in the tens of millions of dollars. So, so you do need to be aware that this is new. Uh, but you know, at the same time, the teams are iterating and learning, and uh, you know, we haven't seen anything what I you know what I characterize as catastrophic happen. Um, and the most important thing is that the underlying blockchain networks, Ethereum, Bitcoin, others, those have continued to be secure.
0: And the other issue as well is one of this idea of scalability. Uh, and when we when we mentioned that word, we're really talking about the network's ability to, to maintain sort of all these applications, but also do it in efficient uh, and a low cost manner as well. So uh, at the moment, Ethereum does have some scalability issues and, and there are concerns, you know, whether these are going to get resolved or not.
1: That's right. And there's already some serious competition. Uh, you know, Solana, for example, has attracted a lot of interest this summer, can process tens of thousands of transactions on their layer one, their base blockchain, compared to the dozen or so you know, roughly that Ethereum can do on its base layer. So what's interesting about the blockchain space is different blockchains are experimenting in different ways with different approaches to scalability. Ethereum uh, is kind of throwing the kitchen sink out of the problem. with the hope that one of these things will kind of stick. And I think there's a general confidence that, that it's going to get sorted out positively. But the competition is breathing down Ethereum's neck.
0: Yeah. And certainly I want to dig into those things in a moment in terms of sort of upgrades to the network and things that are happening in that space. But just one of the other issues, because you mentioned sort of Solana there and and all these other challenges is, you know, if we look to the future um, and you've got various different blockchain uh, platforms operating, the other issue is one of of these being able to to work together or, or interoperability. Do you see a world in which these different platforms can work together? Do we get a world of sort of fragmented applications on various different blockchains. I mean, how do you see that playing out?
1: Yeah, no, that that is, uh, you know, the multi-trillion dollar question, actually. And and I think what we're seeing already, I think, is a clue as to what to expect. So we have, for example, coming back to Bitcoin, something called wrapped Bitcoin, which is a way of tokenizing Bitcoin on top of Ethereum. And so you actually see a significant amount of Bitcoin moving on Ethereum, so to speak, And serving as collateral in these DeFi borrowing and lending protocols on exchanges. And so there are already bridges in various ways that we're finding to make collateral assets and protocols more interoperable. But how that all plays out uh, is a very hotly debated topic and and worthy of its own hour plus long podcast, frankly.
0: And one of the things we've seen with, you know, the Bitcoin blockchain, but also uh, Ethereum and other blockchains is, you know, upgrades to the network. It's almost as if you've got a, an Android or an iOS system on your phone and you download uh, the new uh, update for that. Obviously not as simple as that. There's a lot more in it, but effectively that's the idea here. So when you think about um, the Ethereum network at this point, what are some of the upgrades coming into the coming through the pipeline, uh, and what does that mean for the Ethereum blockchain going forward?
1: Right. Well, we've seen already some big changes uh around Ethereum's monetary policy and the supply of ETH, the currency. And you know, we've seen you know transaction fees rather than going to miners getting burnt. And so that's uh reducing the supply, putting kind of like a tightening of supplies, I guess the way to think about it simply. You know, that's one thing that's making ETH arguably scarcer and maybe a stronger store of value, putting it more directly in competition with Bitcoin, specifically as a scarce store of value. So that's one thing. Certainly capacity. Uh, you know, we're looking at things like gaming, non-fungible tokens, you know, collectibles—something you buy once, maybe like a piece of art. You may not be transacting regularly, but if you're going to run something like a Fortnite or or some kind of multiplayer game on top of a the blockchain, there's going to be a lot of need for for throughput and high transaction capacity. So I think scalability enables some pretty incredible, you know, kind of uh, opportunities in gaming specifically. Um, so those are a couple couple things I'd highlight that I think are on the horizon.
0: You mentioned the scarcity one. That's always an interesting one with Bitcoin in particular, because, you know, we know there can only ever be 21 million Bitcoin mined. How does that compare with Ether?
1: Yeah. So there's an overall greater supply of Ethereum. I think the, the important thing to understand about Ethereum's monetary policy and its supply is it very much is kind of an open question, kind of what the end monetary policy looks like. It's very less etched in stone than Bitcoin's. I think the idea of ever changing the 21 million limit for Bitcoin is kind of just out of the question, barring some kind of like existential crisis, like you'd have to change that for Bitcoin to survive. Whereas Ethereum, it's more about, well, how do we make this into the global world computer? What kind of monetary policy supports that? If the supply needs to continue increasing into perpetuity as it currently is scheduled to do, so there is no hard cap on that, then that's probably what the monetary policy is going to be. However, I think there's always the possibility that Ethereum does go with a hard cap like Bitcoin if it needs to do that to, again, achieve this objective of becoming the world's largest, most decentralized computing platform.
0: And just on that point, when you a final one, Garrick, when you look at the 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 sort of cryptocurrency complex in the future, you know people describe Bitcoin as a currency, as digital gold, um, you know, and many other things uh, as well. Uh, what role do you think Bitcoin has, and what role do you think Ethereum has in 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 that future?
1: Yeah, this is another huge question. I mean, many people, you know, take the view and it may be a minority view right now that actually all of this DeFi and decentralized applications are going to collapse back on top of Bitcoin and see there two networks like Stacks, for example, enabling NFTs and what, you know, DeFi on top of Bitcoin. And many people think that that's kind of where this will go because Bitcoin is the most decentralized network. That's in essence why you would ever use a blockchain and something that's more centralized is going to always have a hard time competing with the most decentralized network. Having said that, Ethereum is moving more quickly in terms of innovation than Bitcoin, has, I think, a pretty good competitive mode of developers and and applications on it already. And uh, it's going to be interesting. I mean, this is what keeps uh, people like me who've been in this space for 10 years excited. How is this battle going to play out?
0: Uh, Certainly. I mean, it's one we're going to be watching uh, very closely as well, Garrick. But look, it was so good to have you back on the podcast. Thanks for that uh, fantastic insight.
1: Thank you, Arjun. Always a pleasure.
0: We're just going to take a quick break. Stick with us. We'll be right back after this short message. Subscribe to the Squawkbox Europe Express Podcast. Join Steve, Karen and myself, Arabile, in unscripted and dynamic debate around the day's top stories with first and exclusive interviews of the best in business and global newsmakers, original points of view and instant analysis of the latest business news and key market themes. Get set for the day ahead. Squawkbox Europe Express Podcast, now available on Spotify, Apple Music and Google Podcasts. That's great insight and that sets us up nicely for the next part of our conversation. What is the future of Ethereum and what are some of the apps we can expect to see going forward uh, to discuss that i'm joined now by liz matthew the head of strategic sales for the americas at consensus now consensus is building uh, some ethereum based applications so i'm very interested to hear her insight uh, liz great to have you on the podcast now we just heard from garrick harman of the and blockchain.com uh, about you know smart contracts uh, the term decentralized finance or defi now you come from a traditional traditional financial background, you're looking now into DeFi based on Ethereum. So what are some of the most promising applications?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So as someone who's been looking at capital markets for over 15 years now, this is particularly interesting because it really changes the dynamic of how you think about the manufacture and distribution of financial risk profiles now i mean if you look at what's happened over the last 12 months you've gone from something as small as 2 billion dollars assets under management maybe 12 months back to now something like 100 billion dollars in the last 12 months with almost a trillion dollars of volume turnover and so we we're seeing an explosive growth but even besides that price action what's really cool is that you have now the ability to use open-source, composable, permissionless, sensor-resistant software to essentially create the ability to lend, borrow, stake, swap, hedge. These are activities that were otherwise extremely concentrated and accessible just to a very small number of institutional uh, investors. And then from a cost perspective, this improves access to financial engineering overall, not only to the long tail of institutions, but also to the retail in a very disintermediated way.
0: And I used to sort of work in London, obviously a, a massive financial center and talking to a lot of the, the financial institutions there. It seemed like even years ago, they were discussing blockchain technology. It felt like just a bit of a buzzword, really. There wasn't really much happening um, in the space at that point. So where are we now? I mean, how are, how are large uh, institutions such as banks or, or insurance companies uh, approaching uh, this technology?
2: Yeah, it's a really good point. So yes, a couple of years back, I think we were still in the experimental stage. Uh, Banks and um, regulated capital were looking at this purely from an experimentation point of view. Many of the experiments were really not on the public mainnet. They were on a private permission network. And people were just trying to understand the applicability of this protocol, if you will. Today, I think there's a far greater understanding of the power of decentralization. Um, Some of the problems that have plagued TradFi, as we call it, still exist. It's still very inaccessible. Players still suffer from really bad cost structures. And the industry has collectively not solved for things like identity and shared compliance. Um, And I'm sure your viewers will appreciate stock markets and bond markets at a retail level. And I don't know if they fully appreciate how manual the issuance and life cycle of these instruments are at the wholesale level. So, how does a bond get issued? How does it get sold? All of this is very manual today in TradFi. And so, today, what we're seeing happen is you have the most forward thinking banks and custodians lean into understanding the revolutionary nature of decentralized finance. They are looking at this, obviously, because their clients are looking at this as an asset class that has given uncorrelated outsized returns in the last few years. But what I would also like to highlight is you are seeing an emergence of regulated institutions. So exchanges, regulated custodians, and funds that are looking into this space from a real first principles basis and are actually deploying real capital and at institutional levels.
0: One of the things I've seen over the years is is proponents of this kind of technology will often say, well, you know, blockchain can solve this, blockchain can solve that. And oftentimes there's absolutely no need for that that technology. Why at this point are some of these examples you're bringing up uh, requiring blockchain technology? Why, for example, can more efficient FX not be done without it?
2: Yeah, I mean, when you ask why blockchain, it's it's almost like asking me why internet 20 years back. Um, And sort of when... Web 2.0 or even Web 1.0 was sort of emerging. I don't think people fully understood the far-reaching consequences and applications that could have been built off of it. Today, I mean, we've gone through a few cycles of things that have Taken popular interest, right? So, the summer of 2020, we sort of refer to as the DeFi summer, where you saw automated market makers, you saw liquidity pools that you could lend and borrow to. These financial primitives just did not exist and still do not exist in TradFi. If you have the ability to programmatically engineer digital scarcity, non-fungibility, and business logic, um, all on top of open source software that is composable, that can then create certain properties that lend itself to a digital bearer quality. Uh, And that's just not something that we've seen using um, Web 2.0 tools.
0: Now, you've been uh, talking about sort of regulated institutions looking at this technology uh, and regulation is is going to be very key for the future of this technology, really. Uh, At the moment, uh, the regulators, uh, particularly in the US, uh, aren't wholly convinced by DeFi. I was reading a a speech uh, earlier this year uh, from the Commissioner of the uh, Commodity Futures Trading Commission. He was talking about DeFi and his argument was that the intermediaries that currently exist in the financial system, play a, a key role. Um, stability is one of those those roles that they play, and um, that that was his point. And he ultimately said that at this point, DeFi is is a bad idea um, for the system. Of course, uh, decentralized finance looks to get rid of those intermediaries. So um, when you think about the regulatory environment right now, it doesn't seem as open at this point to DeFi. Do you think that's going to change?
2: Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, we, so we at Consensus absolutely welcome further clarity around regulations. Uh, We think that there should be rules in place that um, first and foremost, improve access to financial markets, especially among those groups that have traditionally been excluded. Um, We also welcome regulations that provide regularity, uh, sorry, clarity, (laughs) regulatory clarity and um and, and really seek to protect consumers as well as seek to establish a marketplace integrity. And so what we found is that, you know, if you look at episodes like post 2008, no one had a clear visibility on where the systemic risks were. We didn't have a view of um, who were the beneficiaries of certain derivative contracts. And so I would argue that using blockchain, having an immutable record of transactions real-time, should address some of the operational inefficiencies that TradFi have suffered for over the years. That being said, I'll also say that much of the regulation today has been designed for an intermediated ecosystem, and I think it's worth looking at a framework that thinks about a disintermediated ecosystem.
0: So, in, in your view, that would require some form of new regulation? The existing framework doesn't work, in your opinion?
2: Yeah, without getting into specifics, I mean, the rules, you know, some of the rules specifically in the U.S. were designed in the 1930s at a time when really we didn't have the benefit to a lot of the technology that we have today. Um, And so it's definitely worth taking a look of really what you could achieve with the technology Uh, available today. I think it needs to be nuanced. Obviously, the principles of consumer protection and marketplace integrity still hold. And we hope that this technology is used for um, wider adoption and greater financial access, both at the retail and institutional level.
0: Now, beyond uh, sort of financial uh, institutions, beyond the financial system, one of the uh, big things we've uh, seen recently is non-fungible tokens or nfts often built on the ethereum uh blockchain they've become very popular particularly for you know pieces of digital art for example but i guess one of the bigger themes here is the tokenization of things you know putting uh some of these what were things you'd usually buy physically onto uh, a digital ledger. So as you look at NFTs, I mean, what kind of insight does that give us uh, into the future of, of Ethereum and, and the broader blockchain technology?
2: I think that's a great question. And I think the popularity of NFTs has really taken off this year. Um, it's begun by cyberpunks and bored apes, which are really very rudimentary, but as the technology improves and as you think about really what are the attributes, the non-fungible attributes that would benefit a particular asset class, really you can think of Um, applications that go beyond uh, collectibles or digital art uh, absolutely will power the digital goods economy. It is very intuitive for the gaming economy to embrace this technology. If you look at something like Axie Infinity, that's taken so uh, popularity, uh, you know, in, in the Philippines and other countries. I mean, that in itself is an economy in itself of Buyers and sellers of time and money. And so it's really great to be able to see that um, non-fungible token software being used to be able to replicate what should actually be the function of an economy in the first place. So, you know, I'm I'm super excited to see the popularity of digital collectibles and art, but I also think that there's going to be an overall financialization of NFTs. There are certain assets in the world like real estate that are non-fungible by nature, um, there's absolutely no reason why that should be represented by a fungible token or something that uh, was represented in, in in legacy systems.
0: The other thing that always fascinates me about these different platforms is the relationship between uh the underlying blockchain technology and the token, the, the cryptocurrency that sort of powers it. And in this case, uh, when it comes to Ethereum, that that token is Ether. Now, there's been a lot of criticism, say, of other platforms that the underlying blockchain is great, but the token is unnecessary. Why do we have this? I mean, what's the relationship here between Ether and Ethereum? Is Ether absolutely necessary uh, for all of these applications to run?
2: It's a really interesting question and really tests my... Um my awareness levels, really, of of blockchain as a a science. Uh, But I would like to separate out the price action of Ether to the utility of how the blockchain works. Um, You're absolutely right that the validation of blocks at the protocol layer doesn't need to be powered by a currency that is so volatile. We seek to have this software if, you know, eventually be used to be maximally decentralized and be maximally relevant globally and eventually be a public utility. So the price action of ETH per se um, and the volatility around it really is immaterial. I would say that, you know, I think there's a lot that can be done in improving um, sort of the variability of transaction fees in general. And I think that the software is only going to get better. The solutions around the usability are only going to get better. I expect in the future, you are going to see a world where really all the complexity around gas fees and the volatility and the fact that your transaction might not get committed because of congestion in the network. All these issues are being looked at very deeply and trying to be solved and the usability of any technology at the very early stage isn't really um, the driving factor for adoption, uh, but it will get better going forward.
0: And beyond the Ethereum platform, there are a number of other challenges uh, around coming up. As you look to the future and you see applications being built on, say, Ethereum, you see applications being built on uh, another platform, for example, what does that mean for interoperability systems being able to work together? And does that get us to a place where actually in looking to decentralize finance, we actually get into a, a sense of fragmentation of finance.
2: Yeah, that's a really good point. So um, today, um, you know, Metamask and our suite of products are compatible with Ethereum and um, EVM compatible chains. So there are many other chains that you will still have access to through MetaMask, the digital wallet, and our host of uh, products. Um, for the other chains, I think absolutely you're right. Like you do see arbitrage opportunities in other chains, vis a vis Ethereum or EVM compatible. And some of that pr- arbitrage opportunities because access to those chains. Is difficult. And so it's something that we get asked a lot, especially from smart money clients, if you will, in solving for that. Um, We are constantly working to improve the interoperability of our platform with others. Uh, We absolutely think that we want to make this software absolutely reach everyone globally. And so that would mean an interoperability with other chains and providing the software in order to do that.
0: Great, Liz. Uh, fascinating conversation. Thanks for for that insight into the world of DeFi at the moment. Um, you know we've got so much more to talk about, and hopefully we can do it again on another occasion.
2: Absolutely. That this has been great. Thanks for having me, Arjun.
0: Hopefully, that's given you viewers and listeners a sense of Ethereum versus bitcoin there's so much more in depth of course we can go but we just wanted to lay a foundation with this episode and we can certainly uh, talk more about it in the future let us know your thoughts are you invested in either ethereum or bitcoin if so why you can leave a comment below or you can also hit me up directly on twitter at argent carpal well that's it for another episode of cnbc's beyond the valley thanks for watching and listening and i'll catch you next time
2: beyond the valley